as we open our eyes to really see what's going on in our families and our churches and our environments, we have this responsibility now to not just see it and brush it under the rug, but actually do something with it to actually help change the culture, which is currently normalizing abuse and bring in some more higher vibrations and some more love and change the way that things are going. Today's guest is Karen Tate, and she is a thought leader, a speaker, a seven times published author and activist, and she's going to get you really revved up to get out there and start making an impact with what you're seeing in the world, changing our pervasive culture of abuse and bringing in more love. So join us to find out more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Nectar Show, that show where we talk about all things essence, where we gather around the campfire and we share our stories of connection to that which is greater than us, to the great mystery beyond the veil, to those synchronistic moments that lead us inexorably towards a deeper understanding of who we are and what we're doing here on planet Earth and what this whole construct is really all about. I'm your host, Carrie Hummingbird, and I, I love having these conversations week after week and in, inviting you to join us and contribute your thoughts too, because I'd love to hear what you think. And so shoot me an email, send me a message on social, and I'd love to connect with you and see what you think about all these conversations. And today is going to be another one of those conversations that could stir up some real thoughts and about your life and where you are in the conversation of abuse. I know that our world is just teeming, teeming with different ways of feeling abused. You know, we have emotional abuse, we have physical abuse, we have mental abuse, we have psychotic abuse, we have <laughs> psychological abuse, we have energetic abuse, we have, I mean, how many ways? And here's really the invitation is in your life, yeah, I love this uh, conversation with Don Miguel Ruiz in his book, The Four Agreements. And he says, you know, that we'll tolerate a relationship, an abusive relationship, just so long as it abuses us less than we abuse ourselves. And the moment that we're abused more than we abuse ourselves, we say no to that relationship and we walk away and we find a new way of being or a new relationship. We say, no, thank you. I, that's more than I abuse myself. So now I I need to leave. And and so for me, as soon as I read that, I thought, well, then the goal I have is to abuse myself less and less and less and less and less until, you know, like, who am I going to be in a relationship with? But that's another question. <laughs> but how can I abuse myself even less? How can I be more kind, more loving, more gentle to myself? And then therefore be able to then give that to others. And definitely, if you're listening to this, you've been listening to lots of conversations throughout the years and right now we're moving towards more sovereignty. You know, we're moving out of the victim consciousness and into sovereignty and, and into an understanding of ourselves beyond this idea of abuse. And yet here it is pervasive in our world. And so where do we stand with uh, on that skinny branch between what is becoming and what is right now? And so today we're going to have a beautiful conversation. I'm quite positive with my guest, Karen Tate. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate so, it. 
Yeah, so glad you're here. And Karen um, is a thought leader. She's a speaker. She's a seven times published author and activist. And her work is at the crossroads of spirituality, personal transformation, and and social justice. She's the hostess of the long-running Voices of the Sacred Feminine Podcast, considered a treasure trove of wisdom for more than a dozen years. This is a long time to be having a podcast. This one's been going for seven years, so I can really appreciate one that's been going for 12 years. She has been a caring economy conversation leader and a power partnership presenter with the Center of Partnership Studies. And she also went to my alma mater and got a certification in psychology of political activism, women changing the world. I can so respect that. From Smith College, beautiful. And I've been on lots and lots of different places. We're going to put all of the details about Karen's experiences, which are extensive, in the show notes so that you guys can take a look at that at your leisure. And just letting you know, like her newest book, which prompted this interview, is called Normalizing Abuse, a commentary on our pervasive culture of abuse. And that got published in January 2023. So really excited to have you here. I know that you've also published lots of books, Karen, about the goddess Lots of deep work you've done with uh, Sacred Feminine. And so really looking forward to seeing what you have to share with us. I know that you're also an interfaith minister. So that that's another aspect, you know, like really being inclusive. So how did you get to be on this path? I mean, all of these wonderful gifts and wisdom that you're here to share with us today. Where do you want to share about your journey to bring us up to speed with who you are as we launch off into our deep conversation, which I know we're about to have? Okay, well, I'll start with the fact that I was born in New Orleans, which is the the Bible Belt. And, you know, you don't hear about uh, much of what I'm going to talk about today, whether it be abuse or the goddess and the Bible Belt. It took my leaving uh, Louisiana and moving to California uh, for my mind to expand and these ideas to sort of puncture the the bubble that I lived in. And I, I want to tell you, I grew up your typical Southerner. You know, we didn't learn about uh, slavery and the Civil War. Racism was an everyday occurrence. It was just normal. You know, we considered this all normal because we had no one to tell us otherwise, you know. So I'm sharing this as an example that uh, people can really change when they're exposed to new information. But that is so important to be exposed to new information, which I was in California where we moved. And uh, I will say, though, uh, when I was living in the Bible Belt, I grew up a Catholic, but religion didn't really sink its teeth into me real deep. I was really interested in ancient cultures, and uh, you'd find me reading books on ancient Egypt and people around the world. And I think that kept the door open for me to, you know, sort of expand my horizons. And when I moved to California, I discovered this, I, I stumbled onto a class about the goddess. And as I look back on it now, it was probably a fluff class. It didn't get into the important stuff I learned later, but it cracked the door open even wider. And, you know, that old saying when this, you know, uh, the teacher appears when the student is ready. Well, that was so true for me. And I will forever be in debt to the women who taught me about the sacred feminine. And at first it was just discovering that, yes, there was a feminine face of God. 
because, you know, growing up a Catholic, again, in the Bible Belt, the only female image you saw was Mary. But, you know, Mary was just this passive, loving, sort of intermediary, maybe between you and God at the most. You know, she wasn't, uh, I mean, we weren't taught that uh, maybe she was a social justice activist or anything like that, you know. And so I didn't grow up with any female faces of God that could have affected my psyche uh, to the point where maybe I had a better self-esteem. And I realize now when young women or grow up with the idea of a feminine face of God, it's a totally different experience for them. They grow up and uh, they're they're more independent. You know, they have a, a you know better set of values about themselves. And so it, it started there. You know, I just discovered that there was a feminine face of God. And then I realized, well, there was a feminine face of God all around the world, you know, and for thousands and thousands of years. So I just did a really deep dive and really educated myself. And then before you know it, I married my passion for travel with this new passion of the sacred feminine. And my husband and I uh, traveled across five continents visiting sacred sites of goddess. A lot of them were not in travel books. We had to find them ourselves. But it, it really changed my life to stand in these sacred sites. Sometimes it was an archaeological site. Sometimes it was a museum that housed all her artifacts. Sometimes it was a place where a church had been built on top of her temple. Sometimes it was a sacred grove. You know, but it meant so much to me to actually stand in these sacred places where goddess had been revered so many years ago and, and in many cases is still revered today. So that was sort of a little bit of the background. And then I started understanding goddess as more than just a deity that people look to and maybe pray to, like I learned to pray to, you know, the male god. And I started understanding her as a role model for women. And then I understood her as a set of values. And uh, it became this big umbrella that so much fit under. And I, and as I, as I learned more and more, I became a social justice activist with, you know, sort of goddess as that parallel track, because in my mind, so many of the values and ideals of the sacred feminine are what we need to manifest a new normal and change the world. Yeah, the new normal and change the world, the feminine archetypes and the feminine energies, um, really important to bring those forward at this time. We've kind of reached the end of the efficacy of simply going by the male energies, right? The penetration energies, the thrusting, the logic-based, the mind-based, the, you know, all of those um, forward hoe energies. Like now it's like, why don't we stop and review? Yeah. And I mean, I learned that, you know, we live in patriarchy and I mean, it wasn't even a word that entered my psyche when I lived in the South. And then you learn that, well, the four legs of the stool of patriarchy or capitalism, racism, sexism, envi environmental exploitation, you know, you realize how we have grown up to obey male authority. And what does that do for women except, you know, make them secondary, less than their lives restricted? And, um, you know, it feels like 
as I've been doing my podcast over the years, it was interesting. I was going through a lot of the old shows recently to save them. And 10 years ago, we were still talking about the same topics. But in some cases, the situation has gotten worse. You know, we haven't done a lot of steps forward, but we have done some steps back. But I think, you know, more people are starting to awaken to the idea that we are normalizing way too much abuse in our society. But some people are still, you know, they're not aware of it. I mean, I've talked to women's circles and you know, we'll bring up abuse and exploitation and they'll say, well, I don't have any of that in my life. And we'll go, well, what about, or what about, oh yeah, yeah. You know, we've just become so numb and in denial. We've, well, I think we've buffered ourselves from reality and the horrors of the trauma simply to survive. I, I mean, I had one person who contributed to my book and one of her quotes is, we endure abuse to survive. And I think that's still the case for many of us. And, uh, you know, it was really a deep dive for me to do this book, Normalizing Abuse, because by this point in my life, I considered myself a social justice activist. And uh, my husband and I went through some personal trauma because prior to our personal trauma, I thought I was mostly talking about other people, you know, but he fell and hit his head and uh, incurred a brain injury. I was assaulted by someone wielding a stun gun. And uh, what we went through during the course of our, of our healing and, you know, just reflection during that period, it really opened my eyes to this abuse and exploitation on so many other levels that I had even stuffed in my own head, you know, things that happened in my own life. And I think we all do it. And so much of what's going on around us, we don't even recognize as abuse and exploitation, you know. So I don't know how much you want to go into that. But I mean, it's it's simply all around us and we don't even see it anymore. It's like a fish swimming in water that they don't see. And I, I think until we actually raise our awareness and start to push back against this, you know, it's going to continue. You know, we have to, I think, have some much firmer boundaries in our lives than we actually do. We've tolerated an awful lot that uh, we really shouldn't be tolerating. Yeah, I I mean, I'm my window into this denial space is the conversations I have with um, my friend Curtis about racism and, and about dismantling racism and and how a lot of people are kind of ostrich in the sand. Like, I don't really want to look at that. I don't you know, it's over. It was done 100 years ago, so I don't need to talk about that or it's not happening now. And it's really a lot of um, denial, you know, because as soon as you have black skin, you realize it's still happening. <laughs> it's happening a certain place. It's happening all over the place in some degree or another. So in order to change that, we have to be able to educate ourselves. And so, yeah, what we're not aware of, we don't change, right? We only change what we're aware of. As soon as we become aware of something, now we have the awareness. And so, I've actually spoken with people even who are um, who are African-American and are Christian. And they're like, I don't want to know anything about that because <laughs> they know that the minute they know it, they're going to be aware of it. And once you're aware of it, you got to do something with it because once you know better, you got to do better. 
And so I think yeah. a lot of people are in the game of, I don't know anything, <laughs> you know, like, don't, well, don't tell me, I don't want to well, know. It's more comfortable, right? It makes it easier for us to sit on the couch. You know, I was teaching a, a, a class, Cakes for the Queen of Heaven, it's a Unitarian Universalist class. And uh, what you just said actually came up in the class. We took a break and this young woman came up to me in tears and said, Karen, I know everything you're saying to me is accurate and true. She said, but I just can't listen to it anymore. She said, because I know if I try to make any changes in my life, I'm going to be going up against my parents, my husband, my in-laws. She said, and it's painful for me to hear this. She said, I really just have to go. And of course, you know, I blessed her and wished her well, but I know she could not unhear which she heard. And I think about her often and wonder, you know, what small changes she might have been able to make moving forward. Because, you know, we can't just jump in and turn our life upside down oftentimes. But the first step is being willing to look at it and not be in denial. And then we can start planning some strategies. I know when I was writing the book, the Normalizing Abuse book, I actually put a call out to people to tell me some of their experiences of abuse in the workplace, in academia, in religion, in society and culture, family and friends, corporations, all of these different aspects of society, because all of those are covered in the book to a certain degree. And I think the ones that came up the most often was abuse in the workplace and abuse by friends and family. And I think those, uh, to a certain extent, especially friends and family, those are the most insidious because we trust those people to have our back. And so often they maybe don't have our back. And then there's maybe a culture of silence in the family that you can't talk about it. Or the workplace, you know, how often do you have an employer who um, is you know, you're, you know, you might be getting tips, uh, but you don't have an hourly wage or you don't have any benefits and you're supposed to be able to live on that. Well, that's exploitation. And some people say, well, that's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. Well, that doesn't make it right, you know. And there's so many different examples of that. Employers that put their employees in unsafe working conditions who expect them to break the law. And maybe they don't even know they're breaking the law. I mean, there are just so many things. And I think sometimes when people hear about abuse, they automatically think maybe domestic violence but this goes so far beyond that, so, so far beyond that. I mean, I've had gay professors write me and say their theories never saw the light of day because the powers that be in academia, they were homophobic. And then they moved to a different university and they have incredible success because, the you know, academia, they are weren't homophobic and held their work back simply because they were gay. I mean, the stories just go on and on and on, you know, but we have just tolerated so much, including our sanitized view of our history, even in the United States. Yeah, the sanitized history. I, I live in Texas and so I'm... <laughs> very aware of the recent legislation to make language around enslaved people as to say they were unpaid workers, things like this, you know, to, so that the white children have to feel bad about themselves. And I think that the white people, the white children are going to feel really bad about their parents lying to them when they discover it on the internet 
that, you know, what actually happened. I think what's going to happen is that the white kids are going to feel really betrayed by their parents who tried to hide this information because guess what? Black people are not going to start t- stop talking about it. It's not going to get less quiet. It's not going to get like more silent about that. It's going to get louder. And so in the process of it getting louder, you know, watching that you're the people that are supposedly looking out for your best interest, that you turn out to be a really good human, kind of hiding all that information from you doesn't really speak very well to the people that are leading the school systems or leading the state, right? True, true. <laughs> it's so crazy if you just think about it. But, you know, we've lost, some people have lost the ability to use critical thinking. I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But you think, you know, they're trying to ban books and schools or not teach children about the, the economic of slavery in the Civil War, you know, because they're afraid their kids are going to feel shame. I mean, seriously, are we snowflakes that, you know, we we are, are so weak in our mind that we can't hear our real history? That That's absurd to me. And, and also this idea about, uh, you know, now the big thing is drag shows. You know, drag shows are going to somehow hurt our children, but AR-15s won't, right? Right. <laughs> no uh, gun controls, but we want to control what people are doing with their sexuality. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, you know, or, uh, you know, women can die in the hospital now because doctors are afraid to maybe perform medical procedures that'll save a woman's life. But, oh, we have to protect our children from books and men who dress like women or women who dress like men. It's really crazy. And I just hope more and more people see it for the absurdity that it is, because this is really about controlling people's minds and having lived in the South. I mean, look, I am so ashamed to say I used to listen to Fox News. I used to think Rush Limbaugh was a smart guy, and I didn't have anything to counter that. And it really scares me that so many people still today don't. And I'm hoping this Dominion lawsuit changes the way, you know, networks like Fox News do business because... The media is supposed to be the fourth estate. The fourth estate is supposed to protect democracy. And they are not doing that. They are destroying democracy with lies and disinformation. And I can only hope that all of this that's coming to light right now, more and more people get access to it so they can also say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right, you know, and give them a chance to hear the other side and make the changes that are necessary to be uh, a functioning and aware member of society to make the world a better place, not a worse place. What you're actually pointing to is a kind of a systemic cultural gaslighting. And so how do you help somebody to find their way through all that gaslighting when they've been systematically disempowered from accessing their intuitive powers and not trusting any of their own intuition or what their body's telling them. They've been trained to not trust that and to think that that is from like the devil or something like that. And so how do you actually wake people up to the gaslighting when the tool that they would use in order to detect the gaslighting has also been made afraid of that tool? which is their body, which is their intuitive power. What do you say to that? How do we, how do we help people? 
Well, I had an interesting experience that gave me a little bit of an insight. You know, I, I don't profess to be an expert on this, but from my personal experience, when my husband hit his head and I was attacked, it resulted in us losing our, our job that we had. We were a management team. And because we didn't have an income when we were both out of work and disabled, we were forced to uh, leave Los Angeles and we lived in a very isolated place that was very conservative because it was affordable. And I started, you know, if I wanted to have any contact with other human beings, I was thrust into an environment where people didn't think like me. They thought like the people I grew up with thought. And um, I started to see these people in a very different light, actually. I started to see them as people who very much wanted the very same things as me. And I approached them from that standpoint. And what started to happen was, you know, trust began to be developed, you know, one-on-one -on -one almost. And I didn't at first reveal everything about who I was, but slowly I did. Now, I'm not saying that opened, you know, up a, a lot of doors, but on a one-to-one -one basis, I think sometimes we can make headway. I think we have to expose people to other ideas through maybe people that they trust or, you know, through avenues that, for instance, I know TikTok has got a bad name right now, but if we use resources to reach people with alternative ideas, then they can get exposure to something else. And I know some of these cons more conservative people would have conversations with me and I could see they had aha moments. And I think that's really what we have to do. We have to look for ways like your show and my show to try to reach out and get this message to people and pierce their bubbles. And, you know, that's going to look different uh, in different places, but definitely disparaging them is not going to work. I think we have to reach them from a, a place of common ground, things that we all want, a secure future, a job that pays us enough to pay the bills. We want our children to be safe. We want to, you know, our vote to count. We want to be able to vote. We don't want people incarcerated who are not guilty, you know, things like that. Because there's a lot, I think, that we have in common with these other people. But the powers that be have purposefully divided us, you know, this divide and conquer strategy, obviously. I think with women, you know, Women have to learn, you know, have to be put in situations where we can learn to support one another rather than, you know, being divided by classism, racism, competition for a man or a job or opportunities. You know, it, it's I think it's finding ways to see our common humanity, because in the end, I really do believe we want the same things. And if and if we can you know, talk to each other about that rather than the flashpoints, the things that trigger, then I think we can start to make headway and, you know, open people's minds to ideas that maybe they didn't hear because they were in their bubble. Yeah. And because they're in the bubble, right. And we're all in our own version of that bubble. We're not really aware, let's say that something's abusive. Like we might just it's like you said, it's normalized. We're not aware that it's actually something abusive because we're in a 
in an overall mentality that dismisses people and, you know, isn't a very heart open space. Maybe if we all had a chance to go spend a couple of weeks with a really heart open spiritual center uh, with a lot of other yogis and people like that, and we all suddenly had this experience of being loved and cared about, we would then all of a sudden realize, oh my gosh, like this is love, this is care. And now I know that what I was experiencing before isn't actually love and care. So maybe we need to be like that, that moving, roaming uh, yogi experience, you know, like around new environments, right? Yeah. You know, and be open to new environments because research has shown us that, and I hate to make a generalization, I'm just, you know, quoting the study that I read, but conservative people have a smaller amygdalas and people who have smaller amygdalas they tend to be fear-based. So they don't try new things. They tend, they feel more comfortable living inside their comfortable, familiar box. So it's harder for them to step outside that box. But this idea of love and this idea of yogis, and I mean, that's all great. But but let's just take it back to the church, okay? Because I grew up, you know, a Catholic, and um, I'm thinking about prosperity gospels for for one thing. You know, I'm thinking about Christian nationalism. Once uh, Roosevelt started our social safety net of social security, corporations started working on uh, Christianity, you know, and we end up with prosperity gospels. They started tearing away at the social safety net. And what we have today, I mean, and that's, you know, just a, a thumbnail explanation. I mean, there's a lot more detail and nuance to it. But the point is, you know, instead of the church, you know, teaching you know, the the teachings of Jesus about love and, you know, taking care of the lesser among us and all of that. We don't hear that so much anymore. We hear prosperity gospels. We see ministers on, uh, on, you know, televised on TV with their own private jets, right? There was the guy down in Houston when the city was flooding. Did he open up his mega church to people? No, he didn't. He was worried about the carpet being destroyed because of the water and the people traipsing through. What I'm trying to say is I think, you know, if we got back to the teachings of Jesus rather than prosperity gospels, where it's the sign of Jesus's love, the more wealth you accumulate, the more assets you have. I mean, it's a distortion. I I mean, I really do believe Christianity has gaslit people into thinking that, you know, wealth and assets are a way to prove Jesus loves us. Uh, as opposed to how are we in service? I am what I do versus, you know, I am what I have. It's about the the we and the us, not the I and the me. So I, I think if we could get a movement uh, back in Christianity to sort of push aside the prosperity gospels, to see women as equal instead of male authority figures trying to hold on to that power. I mean, I think there's a lot that could be done within the church, but it would take rethinking of what's being taught there. I mean, the Pew Institute says that, you know, churches are in decline, even evangelical churches are in decline. And I think uh, if, if they were to maybe rethink their message, it would do a lot toward helping society grow up and heal and not be so divisive. Uh, but right now, they're just an instrument for uh, patriarchy, authoritarianism, and, you know, sexism, racism. It's really unfortunate, you know. 
Yeah, it's, what's happened is the opposite of what Jesus preached, as far as I can tell. And I'm yeah. not raised in that system, but I I take a look at it from the outside and go, well, I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus said. And yet here's the entire institution built around these false promises. Yeah. And people clinging to it is in very in a very righteous way. I think righteousness is kind of a dangerous spot. You know, anytime we get righteous about something, we're on a pedestal or placing ourselves on a pedestal, we can easily be knocked off, right? And so that, to me, being a humble human is the medicine, right? And maybe that's what's happening, the exodus from the church, is people need to lose that that sort of righteousness and to be humbled into not knowing anymore and then to find something new, and then to, once you don't know the answers to everything, you get to learn. That's the beauty of not knowing, right? Is to be in the void of not knowing and to be in that uncomfortable spot of, I'm not really sure what's true anymore. Well, and I think too, a lot of these people are looking to the guy in the pulpit to tell them what to think. And I think they really have to start thinking for themselves because, you know, there's an awful lot of guys in the pulpit who we often find or, you know, abusing children, maybe abusing women or men or young men in their communities. And what happens? You know, it's unfortunate. What happens when they're found out? You know, we'll find that uh, maybe that there were enablers in the church that knew about it all along, that didn't do anything about it. Or we find that the community, in so many cases, will stand behind the, the priest or the minister and victimize the victim. We really have to look at so many of these things because this idea of, of male authority being absolute, it's done so much damage. I mean, like right now, I think there is a movement afoot to look into Jeffrey Epstein's enablers, you know, and uh, the banks that knew that the money that was being funneled through Jeffrey Epstein, that, uh, you know, some of those banks knew about what he was doing. And Weinstein, at least, you know, Weinstein is in jail now. Epstein was in jail. You know, we're making smaller steps toward, I think, holding people accountable. But there's so much more accountability, I think, that needs to be had. You know, there's so many people have gotten away with so much and still do at the expense of others, whether we're talking about, you know, corporations or government or the media or or just normal in society and culture, I think we have to find the the moral courage to not wear blinders. And if, if we have the opportunity to say something, speak truth to power. Yeah. And so is this part of what you're talking about in your new book and in normalizing abuse? Is this um, the range of topics that you're addressing inside the book? Uh, it is. And I, I actually start the, well, the forward by, uh, is by Matthew Fox. And I don't know if your listeners will know Matthew Fox. He was excommunicated from the Vatican decades ago. He's still a minister today. You know, he's out there. He's been speaking truth to power for decades. He wrote the forward. And I start off actually talking about my own life and, um, you know, how I realized in my first Saturn return it was about changing uh, and tra transforming the external 
elements of my life. And at my second Saturn return, as I was going through this reflection period when I was recovering from the stun gun incident and and helping my husband recover from his brain injury, the second Saturn return was more of an internal transformation. And I start the book out uh, explaining that I was wearing blinders to a lot of things that happened in my life. And I talk about that. And we get into uh, all of these different aspects of our lives where abuse and exploitation is going on, but yet we don't call it that. We just accept it as normal. And I reached out and got contributors to actually send commentary about abuses and exploitations that happened to them. So it's peppered throughout with short snippets of personal real-life examples You know, I get into um, how can you recognize trauma in your life? How can you heal yourself from the trauma that's a result from abuse and exploitation? I talk about whistleblowers and I sort of put on my everyday woman's social science hat and, and started to study why as humans we do the things that we do and allow ourselves to sort of get sucked up into these bad actions that can not just hurt ourselves but hurt others. And then, of course, you know, toward the end, uh, it, it's about ways we can change our, our personal lives and things we can do out in the greater society to maybe start making a difference. And, you know, like a pebble in the pool, you know, these ideas and these these actions, they have a wave action and reach out uh, beyond ourselves. So as we become aware of some things, maybe in our environment or uh, where things are not as equitable as they could be, or where we realize that they're quite abusive, actually, or they're violent, how we're behaving, we didn't even know that was violent to behave that way. What are some things you recommend for how to transition into a new way? Well, you know, I think when we see something, you know, that expression, we have to say something. I think we really do, whether it's at uh, our children's school or whether it's in the family or whether it's in the workplace. I don't think we can continue to be complicit in the action with our silence. And it can be a lot of different things, depending on the circumstances you're encountered with. You know, we talked earlier about the book bannings, for instance. Well, what's happening, uh, in, you know, at the local level in your kid's school? Uh, what's happening uh, at the workplace? What things do you think are unfair? And if they're legitimately unfair, then maybe you or a group of people can get together and make a statement and uh, try to change things within your own family, within your own school, within your own workplace. Maybe it's at your church. You find that maybe your church isn't as welcoming as it should be. Maybe they're not really practicing the values of Jesus. Maybe you can look into offering a, a you know a, a, a Sunday service yourself on a particular topic, you know, teaching Sunday school yourself. It, it's about getting involved. We can't just sit on the couch and expect to make a difference unless maybe you're writing postcards, you know, or letters to the editor, or somehow you're uh, trying to affect change from from where we sit. And, you know, or maybe it's just volunteering for groups that already have 
a mission that you resonate with. I mean, there's so much going on out there. It's about reconciling your spirituality and your politics. I mean, I can't tell you the women who told me that they cared about the earth and they cared about women's rights, but then they turn around and vote for Republicans who don't believe in climate change or who are supporting candidates that, you know, or against, you know, women having a right to their own body. I mean, we have to think things through from the pulpit to the voting booth to our job. And, you know, maybe if we have a choice between jobs, we don't work for a company that's, um, you know, raping and pillaging the earth or a company that somehow doesn't treat their employees well, like, you know, Walmart or Kmart. We work someplace else that has a, a better record of human rights or employee rights. There's so many ways we could actually do it if we just stop and think when we see something that isn't right, don't tolerate it, even if it just means not going along with it for yourself. Yeah, I love that. And it, it requires being educated, you know, so it requires continuing to educate yourself about the politics, about the different companies and where you buy things from and what, how they treat people. And you might not become aware of that until your, until your young adult starts working at some of these places and then gives you the, the feedback direct, you know, like this is the way they treat us over here. And, and a lot of young people are, are at my son's age on early twenties are not sticking with jobs and people are saying all these horrible things about them. And if you actually listen to what they say, they're not being treated well. And that's why, they're leaving the jobs is because they're not being treated well. And so I think we, you know, that's a disruptor to our idea about these companies and how they operate. And we need to keep our eyes open and go, oh, they're not treating people well over there. That's why, that's why my son is not staying there is because he's not being treated well and he's not going to stay someplace. He's not being treated well because I taught him not to stay places that he's not treated well. Your son is lucky that he had a mom to tell him that, but, but, you know, there are people that think, well, you know, I'll, I'll do anything I have to do to keep the paycheck. And that's really not the, the right mentality if you have any other choice. Yeah. And I think that this requires us to take our blinders off. I mean, and, and the blinders meaning like how we were taught to be. I mean, I remember as, um, when I was growing up, I was really taught like, just get through it, you know, just like, keep your job and keep your paycheck and just keep doing it and just do your best and just, you know, just kind of like let it roll off your back. And, and I was taught, you know, like it's more important to just keep the job than and to have it for a certain amount of time so that you're not like one of these people that's always flaking and leaving. Right. Like I was taught that. And, but even I got into these (laughs) workplaces and I thought I, this is too much. I don't like this. It's not fun. I'm not enjoying myself. And so I became an entrepreneur Right. And so we have the internet, guys. I mean, you don't have to stick at jobs that don't serve you. You can leave and do your own thing and somebody will pay you for it. So I think it's that that faith and trust, you know, following your intuitive center. And and if if your church is, you know, is making you feel bad because of how they're talking about things, then maybe you don't need to be at that church. Maybe you need to be someplace else if they're being hateful towards a certain group. Maybe that's right. not that's not a place for you to stay. You know, you need to go someplace else. And I mean, in looking, Google is an incredible thing. You know, for all the pitfalls of social media and all of that, you can easily go online and see if there have been lawsuits against companies 
or uh, discriminating against different groups of people. I mean, I think it was uh, Chick-fil-A that was anti-gay. They wouldn't hire anyone that was gay. There are apps that you can go online and as you're walking through the grocery store, if you don't want to support corporations that give all of their money to, say, Republicans or Democrats, whichever way, you can decide, well, I'm not going to buy this brand because they give to the political party that I'm against. Or I remember when the Koch brothers were a big name uh, in media because they were using all of their money to influence politics. These apps were out there and you could see all the products that the Koch brothers created in the grocery store and you could actually hurt them in their pocketbook. Or uh, I remember one of the Fox News One of their big commentators uh, got kicked off the air because people started writing the advertisers and didn't want them advertising on Fox News during this guy's show. And he ended up, you know, he hurt Fox's bottom line and he was costing him too much money with paying hush money and all of that sort of stuff. He ended, you know, we ended up getting rid of this guy on Fox News because people out there letter writing campaign to the advertisers of the show. I mean, imagine now that all of this has come out, that Fox News knew that the election wasn't stolen. Imagine if everybody wrote the people who advertise at Fox and say, I'm no longer going to buy your product if you keep advertising with Fox. Because a media company should not be allowed to put out disinformation that destroys the country. I mean, it's that simple. I I mean, and it's amazing to me that somebody, that, that some people could think that that's okay, that they could be allowed to lie and misinform the vast majority of people in the United States and there be no accountability for that. Yeah, I think that your main your main thrust here through the whole conversation is accountability. And I think that's definitely what we've lost a lot of is accountability. And that's because accountability is uncomfortable. You have to actually keep educating yourself. You have to stay on top of things. You have to listen. You have to be willing to have conversations you don't want to have. You have to do uncomfortable things like stop using brands you like because you don't want to support their politics. I mean, there's a lot to, but you have to decide what's more important to you. Right. What's the most important thing? Do you want to have an empowered world where everybody is has equity? I mean, what's your value system? And once you know your value system and everybody listening to me on this broadcast, I mean, we're we're pretty much all agreeing the value system is equity, right? The value system is the planet. And what's good for the planet is what we want to do. These are things where I, you know, we we need to actually be holding things like people accountable and brands accountable. And we actually need to actually speak our truth and get aligned and yeah, like take action, take action to support that. Well, and you know, you can look at my advice from the standpoint of look at all the things we can actually do. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of things that, I mean, and companies don't like bad press. That's the wonderful thing about about companies is they don't like bad press and neither do politicians. So, I mean, if you start actually digging in with a little bad press, then you might actually change some behaviors. Well, yeah. And I mean, just on the news today, you had millions of people out in the street over the last few weeks in Israel. They're fighting against their government who wants to change laws 
that would make it so that the leader of the country would control the judicial system. And they know that will lead to the end of their democracy. There's millions of people out in the street. There's millions of people out in the street in Paris and different places in France because the government wants to raise the retirement age. I mean, there are or more of us than there are of them. And instead of letting ourselves be divided by race, by gender, by religion, we really ought to be holding the people that really need to be held accountable, accountable, rather than continuing to let them divide and conquer us. Because we will be the losers. I I mean, in the United States right now, there are 300 people who have as much wealth as the rest of us in the whole entire country. I mean, let that sink in for yeah, That's obscene. That's obscene. And I, I and my new mantra is a traumatized nation elects abusers to office. A traumatized nation elects abusers to office. And we look around at some of the people who are in office right now or want to be in office again. I think it's like a litmus test for where we are as a nation, because I think we are traumatized. We've been through a lot. You think back, we went through 9-11. We went through, you know, the pandemic. We went through four years of Trump and every day something new on Twitter. We are a traumatized nation. We've had an economic collapse. Wages have not kept up with the cost of living. Some people are still making $7 an hour minimum wage. $7 an hour, and we can't get that raised. You know, we were looking at guns. We talked about that before. They're worried about banning books and drag shows, but not AR-15s that can blow a person's body to smithereens to the point where they can't, they're unrecognizable. It's just crazy. And we really just need to heal ourselves, self-care, and then volunteer wherever we can in the area that is our biggest passion, I think, and really try to make a difference. Beautiful. So I'm going to take a nice deep breath for that. That's a lot. Take a breath. (sighs) We make a lot of different decisions when we're grounded, we're present, we're safe. We make a lot of different decisions from that sacred feminine space, actually, from that beautiful inner womb space that connected with the planet, Mother Earth, beautiful Mother Earth who can show us the way through all of this mayhem and chaos and turbulence and, yeah. All that. that is it, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's the sacred feminine and her values that some would try to convince us are weak, but they aren't. You know, it's about generosity. It's about gratitude. It's about compassion. It's about empathy, It's about our intuition. It's about equality. It's about justice, having healthy boundaries, all of these things that are the sacred feminine. I believe it's about also about being in service rather than than greed. I mean, you look at the goddess, the Inuit goddess. I'm trying to think of her name right now. Oh, Sedna. Thank you. Sedna. I look at her as the environmental goddess. Her myth is, you know, she is the gatekeeper of the animals of the sea. And um, she allows man to utilize the animals of the sea for food, their blubber for oil, maybe their bones for tools. But if man gets greedy and takes more than they need, she cuts him off and she says no more. 
So hers is a great myth to teach us about greed. You know, the goddess Isis, you look at Isis and it is by Isis that the pharaoh uh, has the authority to rule. And you'll see these inscriptions on temple walls where you see Isis with the goddess Ma'at in her hand and she's handing Ma'at to the pharaoh. And she's saying, yes, I will give you the right to rule, but you will rule using the ideals and the values of ma'at, you know, which are basically social justice. And we have all of these goddesses that can show us the way that are beacons for right action and, you know, personal transformation. You know, the goddess Sekhmet, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess, um, I look to her for strength, for courage, for tenacity. I ignore the myth that's out there about her because I think where she becomes a mercenary for her her father, Ra, is really just patriarchal propaganda. And you look at the fact that she is a mother and she is a healer and she is, you know, her son is the patron of doctors. Her consort is the god of, of builders, of creation. And you can look at Sekhmet as a lioness, and you think about how lionesses work with one another. They're, they work in partnership to take care of the cubs of the pride. It's not about competition. It's not about excess. It's about partnership. And really, I love the writings of Rianne Eisler, and she taught me a long time ago that really everything comes down to it's either about partnership or it's about domination. And if we can be in partnership with everything in our lives, that's the road toward thriving and success and healing rather than this patriarchal dominator system that we live in, this predator capitalist system of domination. And I think when, no matter what the circumstance is, if we look at it and we say, is this about partnership? Is this creating win-win situations for everybody? Or is this about domination where it's about winners and losers rather than win-win situations, then I think we can very quickly see, uh, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Should I support this or should I not support this? Beautiful. Beautiful. Good strategy for determining the efficacy of different uh, choices that need to be made. Calling in those goddesses and um, definitely going to be referring people to your new book, Again, that new book is Normalizing Abuse, a commentary on our pervasive culture of abuse uh, that was published in January 2023. And there's lots of other titles. Um, If you look up Karen Tate on Amazon, you'll find lots of other titles. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your passion and your wisdom. I really appreciate that. And I want to encourage anybody to share this episode out with, with whoever you think would benefit from hearing these messages in today's broadcast. And please like, share, subscribe, and all those beautiful things. And we're going to go ahead and give kisses now. We're going to give kisses on the end of the show here, Karen. So if you want to join me, uh, just we love you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Absolutely. So glad that you're doing the work you're doing. And thanks to everybody for listening all the way to the end and share it out. And we'll see you next week on Soul Nectar Show. Bye for now, everyone.
If you found even one gold nugget in this episode of Soul Nectar Show, will you do us a favor? Will you subscribe, like, and share this episode? Maybe even write a comment and let us know what you thought about it. We really, really want to engage with you at a much deeper level. Let's be part of community together. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now. To dive in deeper to nourishing conversation, visit soulnectar.show. Take a sip from the drip of nectar from the source of